Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark and on this episode we're talking about the latest volume in the crossover series of Doctor Who novels, Josephine and the Argonauts by Paul Mars. And Paul will be joining me for a chat later in the episode. But joining me now on this epic quest are two heroes drawn from the mythical world of Doctor Who Twitter. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Hello, thank you for having me back. And making a Trap One debut, Joe. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining me. So, uh, just for listeners, we'll be talking in great detail about this book, so please don't listen until you've read it, if you plan to. So, we've, uh, we've all, uh, all read Josephine and the Argonauts recently. So, for Mark, this is part of your 60 Doctor Who books for the 60th anniversary year, and it marks the halfway point, is that right? Yes, I finally made it to the halfway point a little bit later than I intended. Um, just with one thing and another this year, it's been quite busy. Um, so yes, I'm 30 books in and I think the halfway point's been a pretty good one, a bit of a highlight so far of the ones I've read. Definitely. And, and Joe, are you familiar with the crossover books? Is this the first one you've read or have you read uh, any No, ones? I've read the previous, I've read the Robin Hood one, the previous one that Paul Miles did, but um, like you said, this is definitely a highlight, so... Yeah, I think uh, I think we're all on the same page in terms of uh, in terms of all having really enjoyed this one. Definitely. So the story mm. finds the third Doctor and Joe Grant visiting the British Museum to de- to see a demonstration of the mythoscope, wherein they are absorbed into the machine and find themselves living out some of the Greek myths. Uh, there's lots of different versions of, of the myths, which uh, you know, kind of. Um, familiar with different ones. I recently read about them in, in Stephen, or most recently read about them in Stephen Fry's three volumes of books, uh, Mythos, Heroes, and Troy. And I, and I reread the Jason part of the Heroes one uh, to, to brush up before this. Uh, how familiar uh, are you two with, um, with the Greek myths, Mark? Mostly what I remember is from watching the Harryhausen films as a kid. So a lot of this was pictured mentally as, you know, getting proper... Harryhausen stop motion animations in my brain. Um, I, I fairly w- I remember the myths quite well, but I think I'm going to have to refresh my memory a bit after this, actually, because I remember enjoying the stories when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I might need to brush up. There's a few jokes that I went, now, maybe I don't quite remember what the source was for that one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have time to rewatch the, the Jason the Argonauts movie, so I was kind of wondering if there was any in-jokes or, or references to that in here. Um, I'm like you. I have read um, the Stephen Fry books. I also, a couple of years ago, I think I read the um, the Robert Graves Greek myths and um, the Harry Harrison films as well. And I watched all those. They certainly have a spat of sort of like Clash of the Titans remakes a few years ago, and I watched those. So um, I sort of know pretty up on my mythology, you know, sort of. Well, it wouldn't be my mastermind subject, but... I sort of, yeah. <laughs> I, I did Google a few things just to check when I was reading it. So yeah, yeah, I did that for some of the pronunciations. I always found it really odd with, with the Greek myths and things like that. You suddenly think, how do you say that? So it was the satyrs, yeah. And I kept thinking it was the satires, and I'm going, no, it's it's actually a satyr. So it was just yeah, it was a bit of a test for my brain and also for just sort of yeah, getting my tongue around some of the the names. <laughs> for years, it was um, Hercules. And now in this, obviously, I think they now it's, you refer to him as Heracles, which is, that gets a bit getting used mm-hmm. to as well, but... 
Yeah, I think I think our brains are prepared are looking for Hercules, but I think yeah. I think it's to do with like the the the, Ro- the Romans called him Hercules and yeah. the Greeks Heracles. So it's just sort of getting your head around all your mythos and your mythology. <laughs> I think the good thing about the Stephen Fry books is there is some pronunciation guides for some of the names and things in there mm. as well. And they're just told in such a really conversational style. That's what I, I like about those books. Like the beginning of the section on Jason, he says, you know, I'm going to throw a lot of names at you now, um, mm. but you just need the gist of it to understand the backstory. And if anyone's important, I've put it in capitals and that kind of thing. So it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a really nice way of doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. It might, I might move it to the top of the book pile for 2024 when I move away from Doctor Who books for a bit. They're, they're, yeah, definitely recommend them. They're, they're, they're very enjoyable. Uh, and, and I think this, this book, in common with some of the other crossover books in the series, like the Wizard of Oz one, kind of relies on the reader and the characters not having vaguely being familiar with it, sort of quite remembering it. So like in the Wizard of Oz one, the They've all seen the movie and things as a kid, but they sort of like, well, I can kind of remember <laughs> what happens, but not necessarily exactly how to escape or how to deal with some of the people that you meet. Um, so, yeah, and I think if I had, um, yeah, if I hadn't reread the Jason bit of the Stephen Fry book recently, I'd be, I'd be the same. I think, oh, yeah, the, um, uh, the, the harpies, yeah, I can remember those, but I, I can't quite remember how the harpies are defeated or the, you know, the kind of the bulls later on in, in cultures and things. So, yeah, it's it's good way of, um, of of having that familiarity, but not that the the characters can just go, oh, yeah, I remember how to do this. Yeah, it's not as it's not asking too much of the reader. It's not going to challenge you or test you on the on the background. Yeah. So if you don't know the Wizard of Oz too well the characters um in Josephine and the Argonauts or the Wizard of Oz or the Arthurian legend one mm. that they did as well. So the, the doctor's somewhat at sea in this story, both literally and figuratively. I think the third doctor is, is the most rigidly scientific incarnation. Kind of interesting to see him in a world where myths and magic and gods are real and all his usual certainty around you a little bit, I think. Even even the classic series Doctor would fare, you know, kind of better in there, you know, because I think by the end of the classic run, where you've got Black Magic and Silver Nemesis, you've got sort of Morgan and Battlefield there, you know, somebody from another universe and the, the laws of physics are all different. With the third Doctor is, is very, very just straight lace on that, isn't it? It's like it's science, there's no such thing as magic or anything, you've got the demons and things like that. Yeah, he has a real crisis of faith, doesn't he? It's quite. Um, sweet the moment where he takes Joe aside and he says, you know, none of this is scientific. None of this makes sense to me. So I'm totally out of my depth here. There's nothing rational to this. I don't understand. And seeing Joe thrive on it and being able to take the lead seems to really rankle the doctor. And, and he's quite upset that she's so capable in this world. Yeah. And he's not. Yeah, it's not. It's just not his it's not his world. It's not his sort of playground. He can't, you know, fix something out of a bottle, you know, in a corkscrew or something. None of his sort of tricks work here. You know, and he's basically, you know, he's he's not even the leader, which makes it probably even worse for him because Joe's in charge, you know. She's been chosen to lead all this and he just he's sort of floundering a bit, which is, you know, it's nice to see in a way because it really... Oh, very, very much so. And it's like the master finds it hysterical later on. 
you know, he goes, you know, you're not a leader and he goes, oh, well, no, Joe's in charge. <laughs> and that's just like his worst nightmare. So, oh, I'm, I'm not the boss here. Hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he thinks he's the, always thinks he's the most capable person. So I think this is a real challenge for him having to accept that actually other people are, are just as capable, if not more so. And it's not his his personality that's it's not his traits that are going to succeed in there. It's Joe's. It's the way Joe. It's Joe's actions. It's the way Joe approaches things that is going to actually solve all these puzzles. It's going to her being compassionate and her being friendly and her being nice to people. They're the things that are going to solve the problems in this world. Not his sort of you know, bluster and um, sort of smartness, which is, is, is nice, actually. It's really nice, to, it's really nice to see, so. Yeah, it's quite nice that he's sort of putting the back mm. foot a little bit and he has to just let Joe take the lead. Even, like, from the off, when they meet Prometheus, um, she's okay. straight in there, how can we help him? We need to try and do something about this. And she lobs the rock at, Prometheus, at, the, at, the, at the eagle, and she's right in there, and the doctor's going... Oh, but 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 what impact is this going to have on the wider world and everybody else here and everything? And and she's just compelled to try and help from the off. Yeah, because the doctor doesn't quite believe that the people no. they meet there are real, does he? He thinks that it's a simulation. Whereas no. Joe, like you say, her compassion and empathy, she realizes immediately these are real people. Whether they've been ultimately they've been drawn from another universe no. uh, in, into the mythoscope. But that that sort of impacts on the way that the doctor behaves as well, because he's not as caring of these people, whereas Joe senses that, that, that they are real. I know it's like his attitude to Orpheus. He's just like, basically, he's just like, oh, God, is this bloke with his bloody guitar singing dark songs, you know, and he tells him to put a sock in it at one point, <laughs> which is funny. And... Um, but Joe doesn't speak to them like that. She's like, you know, she's really sort of caring. She treats everybody the same, which is, that's just Joe, really, which is why I love her so much. So, Yeah, I think Paul Mars really gets the third doctrine, the Joe dynamic, so well and so right. The voices are very clear and their characterizations yeah. seem so real. I think the... Um, when you've got all the different elements like the doctor, you know they're just they're just challenged by the situation so much, but in different ways. Joe, mm. as this sits within the sort of continuity of season ten, yeah. is starting to thrive and flourish as an independent character, um, and she's suddenly got the the nouse to do these things, whereas she would just stand behind the doctor and really let him take the lead. Um, it's it's quite I, I liked the dynamic between them, and and if felt very naturally the third Doctor and Joe to me. Yeah, because I always think with Paul Myers, he, he's brilliant for writing for the fourth Doctor. So he's, he's, he's written the return of Robin Hood in this series, the Nest Cottage Chronicles. He really, you know, captures the, the fourth Doctor's voice brilliant. But uh, in this one, yeah, the third Doctor and Joe, uh, he really captures you. You can, you can imagine each of them behaving and, and saying the things in the book really well. The indignation of the Doctor when when Heracles introduces the Doctor as Joe's assistant mm -hmm. um, is is absolutely brilliant. Uh, you can just you can immediately picture his face on that. Uh, and normally in this era, the Doctor would be handling any kind of physical challenges like like fighting the King's Champion in in the Curse of Peladon. And then when those things come up, he 
they they just don't work. Like when he's fighting the the sort of demonic bulls, and he whips off his cloak and tries to do sort of uh, bullfighting, which is very very third doctor thing to do. It's it doesn't work with the sort of the fairy tale logic or the the, the myth logic, does it? Yep, and it, it yeah, it just seems to be that everything he aims for in this backfires somehow. Um, yeah. It goes a bit horribly wrong. I mean, because he did that before with the Minotaur, so we've had this sort of the bit of the um, the Greek myth. Yeah, I quite like how it touched on that. You've got bits of continuity right from there. Era, so that you know, you've got the mythoscope and the uh, yeah, uh, you've got the mythoscope and you've got the minotaur and the myths. You know, it's a lot of things that have culminated in the adventures they've had are transplanted into this story and used totally differently and uniquely, mm-hmm. but still informed by what's gone before. So, I yeah. really I loved that fact mm. about it. I like the idea of um, Joe sitting in the canteen with Benton telling her all the stories because I can so just see that. <laughs> and he's sort of thinking, oh, I wish I was off in the TARDIS. But you imagine him just sitting there, you know, they're sitting there over a plate <laughs> of chips. And she's going, oh, we went to Peladon and we did this and it was great. And it's just like, it's just these little like little images of like what daily life we knew and we don't see was. So I loved that. It was true. It's just like, I think it captured the era brilliantly. I really do. It really so. did. I like, there was little moments as well. I like the fact that it did a little hark back. So you're, you were you go back and see the brigadier at one point while they're still in the midst of their adventures in the mythoscope and it was almost like inception the film you've got the brigadier and professor green watching the gods watching the doctor and joe and the argonauts and it was just a thing within a thing within a thing i just liked that little dynamic and it reminded you that they were being observed by all these different outside forces the whole time and there's ones that can't help and there's ones that can intervene Mm. there's quite a lot going on but it was it wasn't it wasn't too overwhelming it was just nicely done that you've got all these different elements and then you've got the bit where um which i love because i'm probably older than you too <laughs> and i so remember that big telly on the trolley being wheeled in and when they did that to zeus that just made me love because i think paul miles and i are the same age so we've got sort of the same sort of cultural references as well and that just made me laugh i thought yeah i watched loads of those tellies at school when i was a kid so oh yeah i loved some of that that was just brilliant the sort of like that's a very that's a very 19 that was a very 1973 sort of thing i can tell you so Um, i liked a lot of that silly imagery and the characterization that was going on in it there was lots of little elements that just seemed very silly and kooky and that's very paul mars um like the just the way that um, Prometheus mm-hmm. and a lot of the other mythical characters are very sort of they're very blasé and la di da about everything. You know, Prometheus is having his liver. You know, he's he's not going to have his liver eaten yeah. today, yeah. and he's just a bit like, oh well, it'll come mm-hmm. round again tomorrow. But thanks. And it was the just that characterization of everybody was quite good fun. Instead of them being all blustering, heroic, and godly like characters, they were all a bit silly. I was like the dragon at the end, with all going. He's going. Who's going? No, they tried that before. No, that won't work either. You just imagine that it's just it's just spent centuries having everybody turn up to try and steal the golden fleece. He's going. No, that won't work either. And that was again. That was a sort of very blase attitude, which was. Oh yeah, and you've got Joel, who reads the the like, again. We're talking about her compassion. She reads the dragon and she goes, you know, your eyes, you look a bit mm. tired and a bit 
you know, have you been here a long time, haven't you? And she just plays towards its sort of world weariness um, and, and manages mm-hmm. to exploit that for her own gain. But it's because she knows people and reads people and characters so well that she mm-hmm. makes she makes gains that the yeah. Doctor or the Master probably wouldn't in the same circumstance. You're right. I think this playfulness of it, there's a really, there's a, a gag about Hermes early on, isn't there? Like the sort of the, the messenger of the gods. Oh, yeah. I love but that. It, so subtle, <laughs> I don't think they actually say the name, but then this god sort of turns up and delivers packages and then I takes a photo to, say, to, show, uh, to show they've been delivered, which was a really, really great, great gag. I love and then there's the idea as well when Zeus is wheeled in and and like say on the telly which that that's still happened when i was at school in in the 80s as well that was uh that was a thing the big box tvs mm-hmm. and um it's it's the end of a chapter and it's designed to make you think of the first doctor isn't it it says a hawk-like imperious old man uh is, yes hello he yeah. cried querously what do you want hmm and then when king phineas turns up he exclaims oh my giddy aunt uh, which obviously is really closely so with the second Doctor as well. So you kind of think there's there's something mm-hmm. playful going on there. But then it made me think, on another level, is that saying that uh, the gods are the Time Lords equivalents mm-hmm. in in the universe that these characters all come from, and and you know these are the the Doctor equivalent almost in uh, you know in, in the universe that that these beings actually come mm-hmm. from. There's kind of it's different ways of reading that, isn't it? Oh, potentially, yeah. I like that. I like that because it's sort of little Easter eggs. It did, especially because it was the chapter ended with that introduction of Zeus. I suddenly thought, wait a minute, are we, is everybody mm-hmm. going to now turn up being an incarnation of the Doctor potentially? It suddenly piqued my interest. But then you had other little references mm-hmm. as well, like the bit when the the doctor says to the master, I've been here, I've been sent here to help you. And he says, I've never heard such arrant nonsense. And it's yeah. <laughs> the use of lines from elsewhere in the series. And it's, again, it's stuff that's playful and lightly done. You don't have to know that reference. But if you do, you're going to sit there and you're going to be quite pleased. There's also that bit where, like, in The Myth Makers, the first doctor, he's mistaken for Zeus. So, <laughs> and the thing that I learned, which I didn't know, was like Patrick Troughton was in the Jason and the Argonauts film playing a blind character. So I thought when he said that, I just thought that's really nice. It's got all these sorts of different sort of elements mashed into it. So it's not only the Doctor Who references as well. It's sort of like teeny weeny bits that you don't have to know. But if you do know them or you find them out, it really makes it, it really, it's really good. I mean, you don't, you know, you can enjoy it perfectly without knowing those sort of things, but they're just like little sort of Easter eggs, as you said, that are really good. Oh, yeah, I think that's what made it so enjoyable. It's, I mean, it moves along at a great pace. I find the chapters were quite short and punchy, and you'd finish them and I'd go, well, I'm going to have to go on mm-hmm. to the next chapter now because they're always ending on quite good moments and it flows really well yeah. and all these little snippets and lines and quirks of the characters just i got carried along with it it was it was great fun to read and we've got a special guest reading for this episode from uh, trap one regular panelist melvin pena uh, so we'll hear that now wow she said it's even more impressive close up but how did you find it professor there were only whispers and rumors that such a thing existed Professor Green shrugged modestly. I do my research very meticulously, my dear, unlike some, and I spent years clambering into tombs and burial sites all over the world, 
knowing that eventually I would uncover this beauty. My congratulations, Wanda told him. So what do I have to do, you know, to get it going? Now she was up there, she was overcome with impatience. Professor Green directed her to place her hands upon two glowing panels set into the burnished metal some way below the primitive screen. As Wanda's palms and fingers touched the tingling surface, they seemed to fuse with it. The colorful lights pulsed. She felt no pain, but all at once her entire body was wrapped in golden tendrils of energy. <gasps> was all she could say at first, and her face looked rapturous, as if she could glimpse things that her fellow audience members could not. The auditorium was quiet again now, as everyone concentrated on the reactions of the woman in communion with the mythoscope. Tell us, Wanda Barton, what is it you see? asked Professor Green in a dramatic tone. I... I see burning cities, she whispered in a voice not quite her own. Towers and walls ablaze as armies spill out of ships and storm the gates. And there are flames in the sky and thunderbolts raining down on the dusty plains. I see flying horses and dragons in hot pursuit and labyrinths underground going deeper and deeper into the earth. Puzzles to which no one has ever fathomed the answer. Oh! Now her face twisted in dismay. I see a witch, a creature of cunning and guile. She's married to a king who loves her, but she, she... Wanda's whole body stiffened, and her face registered terrible shock. I am the witch! I am the witch queen! And I, why, I am doing horrible things just for my own amusement, just to spoil things for, for the heroes. I delight in their tribulations, their fear. I delight in the pain and the suffering I bring to them. <laughs> then she started laughing ghoulishly, thrashing her body about. Still, her hands were fused to the glowing panels at the front of the machine. The whole audience was utterly motionless as they took in this ghastly spectacle. The doctor, however, had seen quite enough. He was storming along their row, treading on academic feet as he went, and Joe was forced to follow him. That lunatic, he was muttering. He hasn't got the faintest clue what he's doing. I am Medea, Wanda Barton was shouting now and her eyes were glowing with golden light. And I will bring you all terrible suffering and strife! The doctor was in the aisle now and marching toward the stage. Stop this at once! Stop this monstrous frago immediately! Thank you very much for the excellent reading from Melvin, and you will hear him back on the podcast soon in an upcoming episode. There's another thing uh, which Paul Mars did in his previous one of these crossover books, The Return of Robin Hood, is to have the Doctor referred to and to refer to himself as Doctor Who, which I really like as well. Again, it, it ties into that playfulness and it, it makes it feel like sort of era-appropriate spin-off. So in the annuals of the time, you know, the mm. stories, that's how the, you know, it would always be Doctor Who. In some of the Target books as well, uh, the Doctor's still being referred to as Doctor Who, so... So yeah, I, I quite like that. That um, yeah, the Doctor will will call himself Doctor Who, and I think the Brigadier says, "Oh, this is what it's like working with Doctor Who." Oh yeah, I like yeah, I like that element. It was quite nice, as you say. It does reflect that that era of the annuals and the comic strips, 
Um, and that's, I guess, I mean, for, for Paul, it's mm. him going back to an era that he's so familiar with and the era of Doctor Who that he would have grown up on. So it was a way, I imagine, for him as a child. So it'll be, it'll be a nice mm. sense of fulfilment to visit these characters and, and get to play with them. I mean, this is also this is also my era. I mean, I started my first memories of Doctor Who are literally the time this was set. So this is perfect for me. It's sort of like the first one I remember totally is the Green Death, and this is supposed to be set just before the Green Death. So this is absolutely my my era, my Doctor, my companion. So, so I think that's why I love this book so much because it really sort of hits all the spots for me. So, uh, it's great fun. Um, I think it's just, yeah, it's just it's so evocative of the era. It's I think that's the the, the Pertwee era because he mm. was essentially sort of the the closest we had to a regular Doctor in the nineties, and that's when I first came to Doctor Who as a kid. There was a lot of his videos and VHSs were out early on in the range so they're the ones that I saw the most of and he's the one that I saw in bits on TV publicizing the series even when it wasn't on air so he's the doctor that is sort of my my comfort blanket and the most easy to to get a voice for and tune into so reading this it was just again it was it was a comfort and a joy to revisit the third doctor because when the third doctor's done right it just feels right to me Definitely. And as you say, it's Jo's uh, in the continuity of her penultimate story. So, so give, putting her centre stage, acknowledging the sort of the maturity and the way that she's developed as a character from evolving from the ham-fisted bun vendor uh, that she was, you know, in the in the early stories to, you know, where the you know much more maturity that we see by by the end of her, her run. It's really nice to have that acknowledged, and the Doctor sort of. They begrudgingly come to accept it in this story and the master recognizing it as well, which is one of a couple of really nice moments for the master, I think, of um of reflection as well. It's you know, he takes a moment to think, yeah, she's uh she's you know, she's really matured and she's very self-assured now and everything. And he's also and he's also very, very jealous of the fact. He's felt so jealous of the fact that the doctor has friends on people like Joe about. And he does never gets that. He just never gets that. And it's just you can imagine, yeah, I can really see how he would really resent. That's one thing that the, he the doctor has, and he was never will have. So it was nice to get that insight because you don't normally get much of the master's or the doctor's thought processes in any media of Doctor Who. Um, it doesn't. You don't tend to explore their thoughts and their motivations very much. But actually, the master being jealous to a degree of the Doctor and the companions and, and, and his relationship with Joe, he begrudgingly does accept that he's he's maybe missing out on something, but he knows he's mm. never going to fulfil that or find that elsewhere because that's not how he's wired. But he's, he's, he's got that, that an element of self-reflection for the Master, which is really unusual, but quite it was quite a sweet moment for, for a villain to think mm. like that. But he has that relationship with Wanda, who who is the character who was we heard in the reading was was pulled into the mythoscope from modern day Earth, uh, you know, in the nineteen seventies. And he says, "Oh, unless you count Wanda, which he just doesn't appreciate her at all, does he? She's this brilliant professor who knows all about the myths and everything like that." But he's still jealous of the Doctor's relationship with Joe. He just just has no 
uh, no recognition of what she actually got. And then there's a really interesting line later on where she thinks that the master loved her because they've been, she's been cast as, as Medea, isn't mm. she, in this, uh, uh, when she got pulled into Mythoscope, and the, the master is masquerading as the king of cultures, which is slight difference from the Stephen Fry telling where Medea is one of the king's daughters, I think, mm. and falls in love with Jason yeah. and helps with, you know, the trials that he has to do to get to the Golden Fleece, and then elopes with him on the, uh, on the, uh, on the ship, on the Argo. So that was just like a little tweak, I think, just to make it make more sense. Um, yeah, in terms of this story. Yeah, and I thought that was that was really quite positive because I mean, again, it it keeps the consistency of the master's characterization as well as the others. Because when you see the master latch on to other people in other stories down the line, they're just dispensable to him. People think, oh, you know, maybe maybe he's made a, a connection or an attraction to this person. Nope, they're usually a means to an end. Um, and I like the fact that Joe is so expectant of the betrayal of Wanda and the Doctor as well, that when Wanda tries to help them at one point, the Doctor is highly suspicious and goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to get involved in this. I'm not going to use this function or whatever it was they used because she's aligned with the Master. She can only be bad news. Um, and the, again, his expectations are defied in this situation because she's probably got a better measure of the master than than most people have. Yeah, and I suppose the only other parallel that is is the master's wife in the, in the new series when it's the the John John Sim incarnation as well. Uh, and I suppose juxtaposed with the other character, the police officer who's who gets pulled into the mythoscope. Mm -hmm where he does find a very loving, fulfilling relationship in there and ends up staying as well. He's a very likable character, isn't he? He's, like, he's right there at the opening when he's berating the doctor for parking Bessie right outside the museum. Um, and it also sets up that thing of, of the doctor's kind of abruptness and, and, and truculence not getting anywhere and Joe's more diplomatic approach uh, mm -hmm. with people uh, that is kind of a microcosm of the rest of the story that and you can understand why because it's sort of the the idea that from the outs from people living within the mythoscope they're living in a different timeline so he's been there for long enough to establish a life for himself mm -hmm. to create a new character he is now Argo he is a shipbuilder it's you know things have really evolved for him and he's left his life of being a police officer behind he's now maybe doing something that gives him a bit more of a sense of fulfillment he's found love he doesn't feel any real connection or need to go back and wanda when you've got different characters she's somebody who's torn she's kind of a bit about her reputation she wants to flog some books and now she's lived through this experience she thinks she can get like 20 more books out of this so yeah <laughs> she's more prepared to go back for profit than than the, the police officer is i love the fact that she's uh, her book well the title it reminded me very much of those um the chariots of the gods which big thing in the 70s didn't it? people were writing books saying basically what it is it's just like the gods were aliens and that's it's all the whole thing like that. And I love the fact that she was, her book was sort of like, I think that probably references to mm -hmm. that as well. So, and all the master turned around to her and say to her, she turned and goes, it was rot. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a really horrible thing. He can't be nice to her, even if, you know, she's been there and she's been his wife and everything. He just can't help himself. He can't just say one nice thing about anybody. Um, it's so. just a... Uh, 
it's just that yeah that's your that's your masterly behavior <laughs> turning against anyone and everyone regardless yeah. of circumstance and in doctor who gods do turn out to be aliens don't they like the egyptian gods or the Osirians and things like that so she's uh, she's actually onto something <laughs> But I like that it's kind of left open-ended in this book. We're never quite, you know, the Doctor the whole time is trying to theorise what it is behind the mythoscope. Are they real? Are they imaginary? Are they avatars? They could be any number of things. And it's never made completely apparent, even at the end. You know, it's 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 left open, which I quite like. I like when something's left open for you to imagine. Maybe they have, you know, the people have stayed on in the mythoscope, have gone on to live happily ever after. Because he goes and even asks um, the character of Circe, doesn't he? He goes, what is it? And she goes, well, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, just that playfulness again. I think Paul is just having a bit of fun at the expense of some readers. <laughs> There'll be people that yeah. will want answers really emphatically and they will be a little bit peeved that maybe they haven't got what they wanted. I know. I can live with it. Mm, me too. So yeah, I think I think it fits within the idea, like in Battlefield, that there's a you know another universe where these myths are being played out with with King Arthur and uh, and Merlin and Lancelot and everything. It's yeah, it's it, it does it, fit, it fits in Doctor Who really well, I think. And uh, the mythoscope is this sort of meeting point between our world and their world. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. Because uh, uh, they, they, Joe and the Doctor talk about it being a bit like the mini scope, don't they? As well, that um, that you know that worlds within 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 this machine, uh, like you say, is one 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 of the references to the era, and it also there's the Three Doctors one when when Joe is saying to the Doctor when he says well, none of this makes sense, and she says, well, it didn't in the land of antimatter either, uh-huh. um, but in the land of antimatter. He was still sort of leading the expedition and was <laughs> was in charge and everything. In fact, he was there twice over, so <laughs> it was still kind of his story. Yeah, and it was it was easier for him to make sense of that world, whereas in this realm in the mythoscope, it's not not it's not science based. You know, it, it's mm. not just you know you can't latch on to anything. So it's yeah. it's it's just really troubling for the doctor that he doesn't have the the wherewithal or the the knowledge to get himself out of this situation and i don't think he's used to the having to give up control and let other people lead no, he's, especially his companions as well because that's not you know they 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 are supposed to be companions that's in their sort mm-hmm. of title and in this realm he's not he's the assistant he's he's probably, he's seeing it from the other side and he doesn't seem to like it very much. it must so. be difficult for a doctor with particular that particular incarnation a has got a bit of an ego and he yes, is very right. paternal towards joe so it'll be you know it's troubling him in more ways than one the fact that she's she's being so capable throughout the story yeah and it, it just loves to see she's coming up with solutions where they, they are different to the myths as well mm-hmm. so like with the with the harpies and things like that um it isn't the two Heroes with wings that that chase them down. Um, there's uh, there's there's a, re- re- a different resolution there, mm-hmm. and and it's it, it's all about how Joe would deal with this. Um, and the heroes are quite kind of nonplussed, aren't they? They're sort of uh, 
more saying, well, we, we don't want to stop fighting and we don't want to stop going on quests and live a peaceful life. No, yeah. Exactly. yeah, they're prepared for the adventure regardless. And I think it's the, I'm thinking of the bit where the doctor gets, like, he steps forward with his sonic screwdriver at one point um, and everybody yes. just sort of poo poos it and just goes, oh, well, it was a brave attempt on your part, you know, yes. polarity <laughs> and all that. And just, just takes the mick out of him as well. Mm. So it's puncturing his sense of ego and pomposity mm. that does bring mm. place. But yeah, I think the, the, the idea that the doctor, regardless, is trying to impose his science and his way of doing things on the story throughout. And yeah, even when mm. he brings out the Sonic and everybody just poo-poos him and says, you can't, you can't, you know, try and reverse my polarity all you like. Pfft, won't work on yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And then they have their happy ending as well. It's quite nice, you know, it's how the, do yeah, the doctor comes back at the end and he says, but as we know for now from our own recent experiences, even the most timeless stories in the world must always have an ending. And it just ends on that lovely, that lovely note. They come back to their reality and realise that Time has passed. The story's come to an end. It is foreshadowing the, the end of the Doctor and Joe's time together there, isn't it, as well? Because um, the other thing here is it's it's sort of a final story for the Delgado master that he didn't get on screen. Yeah, just a bit of backstory there. It's quite quite nice, actually, because, you know, the, the, the Doctor refers to them as having been friends previously, and then this is suddenly like they'd be, you know, Again, we're not we're not spoiling the the mythology of Doctor Who at all. It's just enough to understand that there's friction and there was a relationship and something sent them on their different paths. Um, so it's it was yeah, I quite like those little elements. And we get that really traditional thing of the third Doctor and the Master being forced to work together when they have to navigate to to where the the Golden Fleece is. So again, that that feels like a nice homage to that era and, and a good way of, um, of writing that character out as well as they get that one last thing where they're reluctant allies that have to work together um, but then yeah the master kind of laughing triumphantly as he's led into Hades so he thinks he's going to kind of reign, reign in Hades, he's a great exit for him as well, okay. absolutely fantastic He's very manic in this it is, mm. He is very, very manic. I, he did know, yeah, that was one thing. He thought he's finally, like, the doctor notices, is like, he's finally, you know, any sort of realms of sort of his sanity is just really gone now. He's just like, he's sort of turned into Omega in a way. He's just like, you know, Omega wanted to be a god. The master goes around saying, you know, I want to be more powerful than a god, so... The sort of the level of intensity from like you know I want to rule the world to now I want to rule everything is just oh, yeah. cranked up and up and up. So, and then you've got is it, is it the dragon that appeals to his vanity and says you know you might have the golden fleece but there's one more powerful thing out there that you might want and the master is immediately mm. oh what is it what is it what could it be so it's the, the it's the fact that mm. people have got the measure of him the dragon and all the other people in the mythoscope are going. He's a wrong and yeah, we'll just, you know, he's, there's no ends to his lunacy. Yep, he'll probably say yes to this situation, and he does, and it leads to his, his exit, not his demise, but whatever leads, whatever comes from next in Hades. It's probably why well, next time we see him, he's all burnt. <laughs> That's what oh, I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. You're going to hell next time we see you, you're crispy. So, okay, well, something yeah. obviously happened then. <laughs> Rationalise the crispy master then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's my, that was my, that's my head canning in yeah. and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, so that's I think right. I'll go with that one as well. I like the sound of that. And this is a much better, this is the sort of, Roger, this is the sort of exit that if Roger Delgado had lived, would have been brilliant. You know, I know what, you know, we couldn't get it. But this is such a perfect, it's a really good ending for this mm. master character, which I think is the best, one of the best things about it. It's just like, you know, he's not, stuck on the planet with the old ones you know he has a good story and a good ending and it's you know it's like oh for the grace of god this is what should have happened really so it's quite it's nice in a way because i think paul mars it just comes across that he's got a real affection for the era he's trying to sort of tie up loose ends and acknowledge elements of the characterizations he's doing he's doing things that i think any fan would be quite pleased to see happen. You know, you, I, don't, I don't think many people could read this and be offended or upset by the story. I think it's a real love letter to the era. Oh, no, not at all, no. Well, he did say that. He said it's sort of like it's a love letter to Joe and to mm. Katie Manning, you know, because he's got such a good relationship with her as well because of all the Irish world time stuff. And it really is. It really is a sort of like this is Joe's story and she's brilliant in that you know I just well I love Joe anyway I'm slightly biased because of the name but <laughs> but she was my she was my first companion as well so you know these two have a real affection a real place in my heart and this is just you know it's the perfect story for me it's just like I love it so I really love it I thought I can heartily recommend it oh, yeah. to everybody and I, so. I think that nostalgia factor and the, the affection that people have for the characters really informs it and I think most people would would enjoy it and be satisfied that, they, that they've got a nice you know a nice inclusion a nice relationship they're not doing anything some some of the sort of spin-off books maybe have uncharacteristic things happening to the doctor or the companions but they are absolutely naturally themselves in this story and it fits in so nicely. It's, yeah, I think it's it's, it's very sweet and I, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. It's lovely. It's a, it's a warm hug of a book, isn't it? And and having the the appearances from the Brigadier and Benton uh, just just make it perfect mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it's all sorts of icing on the cake. I think if it's something, you know, there's there's all the right elements are there and everybody gets a little a little chance to off the cap say hello um yeah it's just delightful and we have to mention that it has got the most fabulous cover yes the picture on the cover is amazing beautiful isn't it it's just i could i would like a poster of that on my wall his name i give a shout out to the man because his name is angelo rinaldi and that is just a beautiful picture it really is yeah it's just stunning so um, yeah, I keep looking. It's one of those covers. I do keep like when I first saw the the little tiny little preview in Doctor Who magazine. I think the cover illustration. Yeah. I mean, oh, that's a bit underwhelming. But then yeah. seeing it, yeah. life well, life size. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just keep getting drawn to it. There's a lot of detail in there. It's a really beautiful cover. Perry looking heroic as ever, and you've got Joe just being fabulous. I love the little embossed this on the shield. Yeah. I sort of looked at that and I thought. What is it? And I sort of run my finger on it and I go, oh, that's so yeah, sweet. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely book from, you know, inside and out. It's an incredible cover. <laughs> yeah. Definitely strong, strong recommendation. Absolutely. Absolutely, so. yes. 
Yeah, I would love. I really hope he's going to do another one in the series because I'll be there buying it day one if he does. So. Oh yeah, I think the the crossover range is fast becoming a favourite of mine. I think the previous ones that mm. I've read by mm. um, Jack Rayner, yeah. they were ones that I read from cover to cover in next to no time. They're just, but again, they were they were fun. They're they're worth getting your hands on. They're, I enjoyed that. I haven't read the Jack Wayne one. They're good. Yeah. I will try they're good fun. That, yeah. They're in that same sort of vein entirely. They're very much mm. fun and brisk and enjoyable stories. Yeah. Um, so I, and I've not done the Robin Hood one yet. So that's my that might be my next stop. That's that's, that's good. You'll enjoy that. Excellent. You will. So yeah, terrific. Yay. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me to discuss this book. Um, if you'd just like to let our listeners know where else they can find you on the internet. Um, you can find me on what was Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Mark underscore Doddick, spelled D-O-D-Y-K. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram, and it's just Mark Doddick. And you can find me on whatever Twitter is currently known as or will be known in the future i am on there as the brain of spock which gives everyone a clue of what my favorite star trek episode <laughs> is so, <laughs> or you can just put in joe short and it'll be you'll probably find me that way that's great well i'll put a link to those in the show notes as well i say thanks for joining me and thank you very much joe for lining up our interview with paul mars which is coming up next on this episode my pleasure. I did. I did what any. I did what any good Josephine does, and I just was very polite and nice, and he agreed. Oh, wow. <laughs> We're so glad you did. That's how you do it. Fantastic. Right name, right style. Yes, so am I. So he's a lovely man. So I thought you might. And he did. I'm glad. I'm so glad that he's so good. Hello, Greyhound. I'm delighted to be joined on the Trap One podcast by Paul Mars. Thank you very much for speaking with us. That's all right. Thank you for pronouncing my name. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'd like to say congratulations on the book. Uh, we've we've just had a great time with it. I've been speaking about it with Joe and another Mark for the podcast. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm very glad. And it seems to be getting great acclaim on, on social media that I've seen as well. Everyone's enjoying it. Oh, yeah, I've seen some nice, nice comments. It's um, uh, it's funny because you, I mean, it's the same as usual. You you put these things out and they they appear, and it's kind of invisible, um, and so you just hope people are liking things. Um, you get bits of things back from like Twitter and stuff. I love it when people do those posts where they're kind of halfway through something, something, and they're sat there holding the book, and and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of encourage people to to take those kind of selfies and and put them on social media. I think they're funny um, and it's just nice there's a feeling of being um, on a kind of collective uh, enterprise with books um, I like it as a reader as well when, when people do that and I do that all the time with things that, that I read yeah so it's nice to have a sense of people reading things at the same time uh, so as I've been speaking about the book with, with Joe and Mark and we've put our heads together to ask some questions uh, about the book okay not hard ones I hope uh, no hopefully not hopefully not uh, so th this is your second book in the crossover series. Um, I, th I, I guess that's the collective name for it. We no. weren't sure. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> no, it should be called. <laughs> I think of them as um, as Penguin Classics mashups, and and they're very particularly about um, 
the world of, of Penguin classics and even the design kind of owes something to the way that they were packaged a few years ago. And so they're, um, right. it's like one set of books colliding with, with another in, in my mind. You know, it's literally a mashup. So you get various combinations of Doctors and Companions landing in the middle of already established stories, out of copyright stories um, that we know from elsewhere. And each time in each book, there's a different reason for why um, our Doctor Who characters are winding up in the middle of a, you know, a fictional universe or an ostensibly fictional universe. And so it's, it's a, to me, it's, it's a wonderful um, series to be involved in. And um, I <coughs> campaigned heavily <laughs> to, to write them when I, when I first found out that they were happening. Because to me, it's 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 a collision of things that that were kind of have been important to me all my life um, in you know Doctor Who books and Buffin books. Um, so I, you know, I, to have both those things on the spine of a book that that I'm publishing is 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 still kind of mind boggling um, to me. Fantastic. Uh, I think they work as a as a nice sort of gateway, maybe for for readers who aren't familiar with the originals as well, to to, to go and seek out the the universes the Doctor is being mashed up with. Yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely a um, a very old fashioned and kind of you know nice aim as a as a, a side issue for this that it should send people off to go and, and read things that that like you know with with um, Josephine and, and the Argonauts and my Robin Hood book they both stem in part from um, books of uh, retellings of both cycles of myths by Roger Lancelin Green which. Penguin first published in the in the fifties, and they're, they're still available today in kind of snazzy new editions. Um, but they have the appearance of looking a bit kind of fusty and musty compared with modern, up to date film retellings or whatever. And of course, they're not. You know, the books are, are really vivid and, and alive still. Um, and so, I do want to send people back to Roger Lancelin Green as much as I want to send them back to um, to Terence Sticks. Um, and you know. The Wizard of Oz in 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 Jack's case, or uh, um, uh, Treasure Island uh, for the the upcoming one, um, and I think that's an important thing. That reminds me of being at school, and you know when you had to write reviews at the age of ten of everything you were reading, and of course everything of mine was Doctor Who, and all these teachers had this job to try and divert me off into you know you like this, so you must go and read H.G. Wells' is The War of the Worlds. Um, and of course, of course, I did, and I could see where Doctor Who came from, or Sherlock Holmes, or you know, you could see, you were tracking it back to to where these things began. So, thinking about it, War of the Worlds would be a good one to um to mash up. I hadn't thought about that till just now. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was that was going to be my next question: is is how do you sort of decide on which Doctor and which story to mash up? Do you sort of pitch various ideas or are you sort of given a doctor or a story to as a starting point um it's harder than you think actually kind of coming up with which ones work exactly and and it is a kind of um a conversation between me and, and the editor and yeah i pitch i think i've pitched about six um each time for these both times for these um kind of different ideas some of them you know completely off the wall and and, and would they'd never let me do um uh, and others, I know I stand a better chance with, like like Robin Hood or uh, or whatever. Although I did think the Argonauts was a fairly um, off the wall 
suggestion, the kind of you know doing as many Greek myths as I could fit in a book, um, seemed like a kind of a nice tall order. Um, and the doctor combination, companion combination, that that is that is me usually. I think it's me thinking of my favourites and who. I want to, um, you know, because I write these the last couple of years in in the autumn months, and it's my kind of back to school project, um, and and I want to think about who, who who do I want to spend that time with in the autumn, which, which characters, and, and and in some ways I'm kind of using all my favourite combinations, you know, to do one with Tom Baker's Doctor and Sarah and Harry, um, I think putting those characters together for the first time for me was was just joyful and then you know returning to the third doctor and joe uh, a bit later on in their, their kind of time together again was something that's irresistible um for me and there are various other combinations that you know i haven't written that i'd still would like to but but you know these are the kind of the, the ultimate groups i think we were just discussing how the third doctor is the perfect one for this because he's the most rigorously scientific <laughs> incarnation and he's in a world of, of myth and magic and gods well yeah i mean he's, he's he's a very complicated one i think in that he um he, to me he's the best one for storming the gates of olympus and banging on the door and demanding to see zeus you know he's always painted as this kind of authoritarian figure who fits in well with the establishment but of course he wasn't he was the person who sat within the establishment and, and caused a ruckus um, and would go knocking on the door of whoever's in charge, even if there was use. So he, he's the, um, he's the most, I think at home anywhere in the universe, wherever he goes and he carries his mm. um, confidence with him. And that's a great person to drop into the middle of this kind of crazy kind of really mixed up world of, of myths. And the science thing is, is funny because, um, uh, because yes, he was he was all that, but at the same time, he he his doctor had those funny glimmerings of almost kind of mythic um, glimpses into a kind of mythic past. You know, he, his doctor confided in Joe at various points about old Gallifrey and the hermit up the hill, and uh, you know, kind of more complicated uh, rumblings, I think. And and we see some of that, I think, peeking through in this book too. Um, and he's also great because he gets disgruntled quite easily and um and has kind of great good humor about it but he's still disgruntled when for example joe is elevated into the kind of the the big heroine of the piece and he has to almost take a kind of uh, step back and um uh, let her get on with it i mean at the same time he's mollified because the argo the ship that takes them to all their journeys and adventures in this is full of the greatest heroes of antiquity, um, the greatest heroes the world has ever known. So he's, you know, it's only just right and just that he's there amongst them. So he's he's pleased anyway, but he does go around slightly, um, uh, looking slightly wry the whole time, I think, during this. And that, that's that's a kind of a joy to write that kind of stuff. And, and Joe wanted to ask, how versed were you in the Greek myths before you wrote the book? Was that something you needed to brush up on a bit? Or you... I think I always need to brush up on them because I, I forget I forget what connects with what. And when you've read so many versions of them, of course, none of them are the same as each other. So um, the things I remembered reading kind of way back 
um, like the Roger Lancelin Green and and various other kind of kid friendly versions I read as as a kid, and then the, the more adult ones and and the more kind of faithful ones. None of them kind of were um, consistent, and I love the ones where where they, they showed how all the stories linked up into bigger narratives. Again, it's the Doctor Who thing that that that, that little stories um, link up into into bigger ones, and you have eras and and um, uh, you know things we're quite familiar with. I think as as fans of Doctor Who, that these are cycles of stories that that, that fit together. So. I had to go back and read everything again. It was the same as Robin Hood the year before. Where I had to sit down in the summer with with everything I had and everything I could lay my hands on and, and read them all again. And, you know, realising that some of the kind of modern retellings that are meant to be zippy and, and commercial and, and fun to read are really dull. <laughs> I mean, one version, I won't say who it's by, actually sent me literally to sleep. Um, so you've got to give these these myths and these stories a good shake to make all the boring bits fall off and to get to the kernel of it which is usually you know heroes fighting monsters which again is something we're, we're very um au fait with but usually it's you know fighting monsters and then you need to take this bit of the monster and that will give you the clue to the the next stage of the adventure which leads across you know some weird landscape and another monster which you then have to fight um, again, things that, that we're very, I think, familiar with. In some ways, the kind of Greek myths is, is, is Doctor Who mythology stripped down to its, to its essence. And so it was fun to, um, to show that in a way. Yeah, I suppose what you're saying there as well, the, the different versions of it, is, it's a bit like being a Doctor Who fan, having the Target book and the, uh, the original story. And then, That's you know, right. various... we're, 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 we're no strangers to um, Apocrypha, and discontinuities and, and, and all the things that, that literary criticism and, and whatever mythologies have, 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 um, have been riven with forever. Um, so that's, that's, that's all right. And it's, you know, it's, it's fun. I think, um, that kind of, uh, uh, yeah, those kind of discontinuities. And as, as you mentioned, it's very much, Joe's story this I think you mentioned on Twitter it's a love letter to Katie Manning and Joe Grant and it's set at an interesting point for her towards the end of her time with the Doctor between Planet of the Daleks and the Green Death yeah it's funny because when I, I think about I mean I wrote the third Doctor and Joe in a novel called Verdigree for BBC Books which came out I think in 2000 2001 and um uh and that's more or less at the beginning of their time together. And it was just before I met Katie in person, before I knew her, before she started playing um, Iris in Big Finish audios. And since then, you know, we've been friends for 22, 23 years. And, and that's a huge and hilarious and fantastic adventure um, in itself. And, you know, something I'm, I'm very uh, thankful for. And you don't know when you write these things that you're going to bring people into your into your life. You hope they're going to be nice people, but there are lots of well serendipitous things that happen because of the things that you put out into the world. And, and friendship with Katie has been a fantastic one, and we've had you know great times. And so yes, it's this is a kind of um, a huge thank you and love letter to to her, and set right before the Green Death. So the whole thing of Joe coming to the fore and we see, you know, the, the difference in her, that she's, 
well, a heroine in, in her own right, and she's she's getting ready to um, <clears throat> to leave the doctor, as we, as we know she did. Um, there was always, to me, a um, a missing beat almost, if it's not too um, uh, <laughs> it's not too bold to say so. But I think in some ways, in season ten, there is a missing uh, beat or a missing story somehow, where we see her uh, be the heroine and then, then return to Earth. So, so I've tried to kind of supply that. And similarly, there, there's a missing beat for another character from that era as well, um, uh, who I don't know if I should name, really, although it's fairly obvious that he's in it. Um, but he, he gets a kind of missing moment that we should have seen supplied, I think, to connect with a later appearance, if that's not too cryptic. It probably is. We've we've put a spoiler warning at the start of the episode oh. and, and and discussed this uh, that yeah that it's it's a wonderful farewell for Roger Delgado's I hope incarnation. So, yeah. I mean, it only struck me uh, halfway through writing and rewriting a, a very detailed synopsis that this was the moment to show him um, being you know dragged off to to hell. He's dragged off by Hades at the end, and we don't see him again until um you know much later in the deadly assassin so it is a a big moment um for him i want to give him those moments as well as like we see in the sea devils you know the kind of downtime moments when they have a kind of slightly friendlier chat <laughs> joe and the master or um, the doctor and the master that they are in some weird way um colleagues well, they have more in common with each other than they do with the rest of the humans around them. So I want to kind of give him some moments. And I love writing that version of the master. It's, it's really lovely the moments that he gets, the reflective moments, I think, that he gets with Joe. Mm. Um, and it, it reminds me what a great relationship they had on screen. Yes, and it's dreadful on TV that, that, you know, that someone gets shoved over in a corridor and then the credits come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's abrupt. It's like a kind of mistake, isn't it? I mean, I know that Malcolm Holt gave a, a, a lovely kind of uh, exit for him um, in uh, the Space War, but I still thought there was room for another kind of big classical adventure with um, you know, and here he is setting himself up as as king in the uh, in the classical world. Um, yeah, so it was um, a chance to get all those characters back out and and, and, you know, and you're right give them some um, quieter moments in a way that you can in a novel in a novel that's set over um, uh, weeks rather than hours yeah I think, I think the moments where he compares I'm probably going to mangle the pronunciation here but Frixus and Hell uh, to to him and the doctor, mm. uh, and when he sort of reflects on on Joe's growing maturity, and those those, those are really moments that really stand out, uh, as well as the the sort of the classic master scheming and gloating and things like that. <laughs> yeah, and he would, he, you know, he he he'd be philosophical um, about where they are, um, and would take the chance to do that. I think he is. Um, well, him and the Doctor are intellectuals, and that, that that's how they were always presented, and that's how why those books were um, really important to the kind of uh, 
clever, rather left out kids, <laughs> yeah. you know, of whom I was one at the time when, when, when I grew up reading these. Doctor Who wasn't a mainstream, well, it was a mainstream thing in lots of ways, but the, certainly the Italian books weren't. And, and um, to see uh, intellectuals as the heroes of these things it was a big deal, I think. And, and I felt like the, the the way that the world within the mythoscope is is described as um, the, this you know this golden world is coming to an end mm-hmm. it almost um, reflects the way that the beloved unit family is drawing to a close as well. Yes, that's true. That, that there's a kind of autumnal feeling to all of that. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the 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 it's it's a contained world, uh, and I wanted to kind of chime off various moments from kind of Pertwee Doctor Who's like like you know the the the, um, the machines not unlike the one in Carnival of Monsters, um, the kind of setup with an experiment at the British Museum is a bit like the Mind of Evil where they go and see the Keller machine. So it's it's tropes that that are kind of semi familiar, but I've put them all in in one place. It's a kind of summation of how I feel about all of those stories, um, the kind of capstone to go towards the end of it all. Um, and, and all of that's, of course, kind of very deliberate. But, yeah, an autumnal feeling, a kind of closing of that um, world, uh, you know, and on to the next thing, which, which it always is. And, and the other Mark that, that we discussed this with, he was asking how easy it is for you to capture the voices of that unit family and are any of them more challenging to recapture than others? Not in the slightest. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, they're, they're constantly present. <laughs> I wish they weren't. All the characters are constantly present and I can hear them all the time. There's a weird, I've said this before, but there's a weird kind of expertise involved in writing uh, Doctor Who time fiction or, or, or scripts in that you are supposed to be able to um, drop into any era of, of the show and know just who's who and, and, and what's what and how they are, which is a ridiculous thing to expect of any writer. But if you're in that world, if you love this stuff, you certain people do know how to do it. And, and, um, and the voices to me are ineradicable and... And in some ways, you, you're looking for the opportunity of, of having them um, come back and still be alive and contact each other and, and talk, perhaps in combinations we haven't seen about seen before or, or talk about things we haven't heard them talk about before. So in, in a way, it's like kind of reviving the deceased members of your own family. Um, and I'm not just talking about kind of actors who've, who are no longer with us. It's It's, it's voices that kind of echo on down through the stories and, and, and you know, um, as a writer, they're still knocking about in your head. And I find it um, hopelessly kind of funny to, to put them back into action, have them say stuff, you know, to have Pertwee's doctor muttering and, and complaining and then, then showing off and all that stuff um, is, is just, it's still great fun. It's still great fun to do. Fantastic fun to read as well. Um, well, I'm glad. I'm glad that comes uh, across because um, if it's not fun, it's, and if people aren't kind of <clears throat> finding it fun, there's not much point in in doing it. I think it has to be above all um, amusing. Absolutely. Well, I really hope uh, we, we might see another one of these novels from you in the future. 
Well, we'll see. I keep saying that I should, you know, it's 25 years this month since my first Doctor Who thing was published, which is a kind of ludicrous amount of time to spend doing this stuff. And I should have spent more time on my own things. Maybe. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, it's it's a lovely uh, finish to it. If this is the last thing I, I do, um, uh, and the whole thing of, you know, closing the last few, spoiler again, but there's a whole thing of kind of closing down the fantasy world at the end and, and packing it all away, all the elements of it, and even taking down the stars from the night sky and they're just they're just kind of tinfoil and and as this fantasy land inside the machine breaks down so the kind of closing down of the fantasy land is also kind of slightly worryingly metaphorical about things coming to a finish so i don't know I, maybe i would like to do some more um we'll see we'll see i'll let you know we'll keep our fingers crossed <laughs> uh, last question if you could mash up doctor who with any other universe regardless of copyrights or or anything is there like an absolute dream scenario for you? That's it's a great question. And ever since I was about seven or eight, it's always been uh, Marvel superheroes. It's always been the Defenders. In uh, Greenwich Village, it would be Doctor Strange and the Hulk and Namor and Valkyrie, all those people in, in uh, the Defenders, especially the, the Defenders in about 1979. Um, that's that's where, and I kind of did it. I almost did it, you know, <laughs> with superheroes in New York in in one of my Tom Baker uh, scripts for the uh, next um, stories. Yeah, it's Demon, Demon Quest, is it? Yeah, it's in Demon Quest. It's called Starfall. Um, kind of trading off some of those those tropes and things. But yeah, to do a kind of you know actual uh, collision of of the. Um, the franchises, although I hate that word franchise, I think it sounds like um, burger stands. <laughs> yeah, it, to, to do it literally would be would be great fun. I used to write all sorts of stories when I was a kid about a kind of post-apocalyptic New York with superheroes and Daleks and things, endlessly. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and speaking to me. It's very much appreciated. No, it's fine. It's a, it's a pleasure. Greyhound Trap 1, over. Trap 1, go ahead, Greyhound, over. And that's our episode on Josephine and the Argonauts. Thank you to Mark Doddick and Joe Short for joining me to discuss the book. Thank you to Melvin Pena for a brilliant reading. Thank you to Paul Mars for joining me for a really interesting chat about writing the book. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do consider leaving us a five-star review or a written review, which will really helps other Doctor Who fans find the podcast and is very much appreciated. Join us next time. We'll be recording a report from the BFI screening of The Five Doctors. And if you're there, come and say hello. I'll be there along with my fellow Trap One hosts, Pete, Conrad and Cy. We'll have some Trap One badges and we'd love to meet some Trap One listeners. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>